worship service. We have with us Robert L. Lister, Pastor Robert L. Lister, who is the minister, the senior minister at the Park Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Lister is a friend of mine of decades. He and his family are well known to me and to my wife. We've had sweet fellowship in service in the kingdom of God through the years. Pastor Lister was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Anybody here born in Louisiana? Any Louisiana? Whoa! Maybe we need to have a Louisiana reunion here, Pastor. I had no idea. I'm happy. But he's born in Shreveport, spent most of his childhood days in Dallas, and attended Christian education. Again, I say Christian education all the way through Oakwood College and Andrews University. He holds degrees in business administration, religion and theology, and has been awarded the Doctor of Humane Letters and the Doctor of Divinity. An interesting part of his background is that he has been called to preach in, and visit in 66 countries of the world. Well-traveled. He's done that in his capacity as a minister, as a pastor of churches, particularly in the Southwest, in the general area where he grew up. And the person who's speaking to us today has served as Sabbath school ministries leader, personal ministries leader, community services, inner cities, communications, religious liberty, stewardship, and health ministries in the conference leadership in places where he has been called to work. He has had a very prominent role in our work of Seventh-day Adventism in that for 10 years he was president of the Southwest Region Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And this is the region that takes in the states of Arkansas and Minnesota and most of all, Texas and Louisiana, that part of the United States. And he had a very distinguished tenure as president there. During his time there, the conference grew by 50%. 30 new churches were planted, and the annual tithe of the conference tripled during his years. So that for 40 years now, Pastor Lister has served he whispered to me on the way in from the airport this morning that he's got a couple of more years before he can uh, demand of the brethren his just due. And he's thinking about that time. But for now, he's still serving. He's still strong and vigorous, leading the 500-member church, the largest of our several churches in Denver. We are pleased to have him here with us today to lead out in what we're calling Leadership Sabbath. His message will be about what it means to be leaders, and that's all of us, but in particular those who are nominated. And this afternoon at 3 o'clock, he will hold a workshop, and we're all invited, but again, in particular, those who are still serving and those who will be next year. Pastor Lister is married to the former Constance Marie Johnson of Chicago, Illinois. They are the proud parents of four children, all of whom are doing well in health service, most of them. 
and uh, he is the proud grandfather of five. We're indeed, we're indeed privileged and happy to have Pastor Lister here with us today. Denver's not too far away, so we ought to be real friendly with our Denver friends, and we're glad to be able to extend that ring of love and fellowship, and I'd like for you, Abundant Life, to give him a hearty amen. Amen. You will hear from him after our special music.
Oh, how he loves you and me. Can you say amen? amen? I have been blessed greatly by the worship service here. And I just want to say to Dr. Rock and Sister Rock, who've been my friends for over 40 years, seems like this church and this city is bringing the best out in you because it seems as if you haven't lost a touch from so many years before. Thank you for the opportunity of coming. A few weeks ago, when Thanksgiving was the subject for the nation, I went into Bed Bath & Beyond and I bought up a lot of things because I was preparing for my children and my grandchildren to come and visit us for Thanksgiving. We had a wonderful time. We had about 14 or so in the house, all from the family, amen. amen. And as I was shopping, the attendant at the register said, my, you must have somebody special to be spending like this for Thanksgiving. And I said, yes, I have the Obama people coming to see me. <laughs> and uh, she said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, we have friends and family with the Obamas. And she said, are you serious? I said, yes, I'm very serious. My wife's first cousin is the father of Michelle Obama. And my, that brought on a great reaction. And I just got to thinking, it's a miracle that God would make it so that church folk like us could have some influence, perhaps, over those who will be moving into the White House. And we want to remember this first family as they move to the helm, that God will bless them. And while the president-elect is looking for a church home, maybe we might find something that we can say or do that would encourage him to look our way. What do you say? Today, I want to talk with you as church leaders and church officers and members and friends about a topic that you probably realize exists. You are being watched. You are being watched. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this privilege of worship. Thank you for this opportunity of Christian fellowship. Thank you for a wonderful church that has the love of Christ as the foundation of their worship. Please tabernacle with us today 
Make us holy thine, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I pulled from my screen door a brochure which read on the cover, you are being watched. As it turned out, this was just an advertisement promoting a special program from a local church in the neighborhood. Today, however, especially since 9-11, there's reason to be concerned over government snooping on your privacy rights. Legal and privacy experts say that there are enough gray areas, conflicting statutes, and exceptions to the laws in this area to baffle even the best informed. The government isn't the only wiretapper you have to worry about. Only 12 states require that all parties participating in a phone call get permission before a conversation is recorded. And those 12 states are California, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Montana, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Washington. Well, the rest of the states allow just one party, and you decide who that one party will be, just one party, one party has to give their consent to record. Even in the 12, law enforcement may be able to listen without a warrant or without your permission. I want to just give you some wise counsel, a hint to the wise. Stay out of the habit of discussing sensitive matters on the telephone. We've gone from the Fourth Amendment in the Constitution in, 19, in 1791, which protected Americans against unreasonable search and seizure, to the Patriarch Act of 2001 and 2006, which exposes Americans to unreasonable search and seizure in the name of fighting terrorism. You are being watched and recorded when you use your telephone. You are being watched with sensitive cameras when you shop in the stores. You are being watched with traffic cameras when you drive on the highways. You are being watched when you travel in the air, when you sail on the seas. You are being watched when you go to the bank, when you go to school, when you go to work, when you go through the security system to get you on the plane, you are being watched. You're even sometimes being watched when you retire in the privacy of your homes. Are you aware that powerful cameras exist which have the capacity to penetrate the roofs and walls of your home to record accurately the activities behind closed doors. They are weapons and bombs of destruction which have the capacity to explode and burn cars and homes and public buildings to destroy people who are being watched. And that's why it's hard for me to understand why we can't find bin Laden. <laughs> Some years ago, I served on the Sunbelt Hospital Board 
when the Florida hospital system was chosen to be included in the model city created by the Disney World people. The town near Orlando is called Celebration City. I was amazed at the capacity of the X-ray cameras to instantly snap a three-dimensional picture for the doctor to review your inner parts as the patient walked through those doors for the appointment with the doctor. As soon as they walked through the doors, the doctor had at his disposal a three-dimensional of your inner parts instantly. You may also remember when MapQuest first became the mode of travel. Just punched in, punch in the point of origin and your final destination and you are safely and accurately guided to your place of preference almost anywhere in the nation. And now the new devices will guide you almost anywhere in the world. This is another eloquent testimony that you are being watched. Some say I'm not technical savvy enough to punch in the destination. No problem. Just say the place and it's done. You are being watched. Not only GPS, but on star for cars identifies their location within 10 feet at all times. So car thieves are to stop stealing cars. <laughs> you are being watched. Computers keep you on the spot. Cell phones identify your location within a few feet, no matter what the area code is, and keep a running tab on who you are in contact with, who you are talking to, they tell you who you are talking to and for how long you talk. Internet transmits letters, pictures, and all manner of communications electronically. There are ID chips implanted in animals and humans that identify your personal whereabouts and your personal identity anywhere you go. Fingerprints. DNA, forensic identity, gives personal surveillance details unique only to one person, one by one, for the billions that are in our society. You are being watched. God has a watch program which transcends time and space. Long before human science and technology, the psalmist raised the issue in Psalms 139. He said, O oh Lord, thou hast searched me and know me. Thou knowest my down sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts are far off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that thy soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my body parts were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are the thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, Genesis 1:26, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God said unto Adam, Adam, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee? that thou wast naked. Hast thou eaten of the tree wherever I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Genesis 3, 9 through 11. Now God already knew where Adam and Eve were. What he wanted them to get was a good look at their fallen condition. He knew where they were, but he wanted them to see where they were. They killed Jesus Christ. And when they killed Jesus Christ, it was simply because of the disobedience. And he had made a commitment that if by chance, if man sins, my life is theirs. So he was slain from the foundations of the world. The minds of angels must have scanned the universe in that terrible hour, searching for some other way to save man. Their songs had just been hushed by the news that man on his faraway planet had rebelled. And worst of all, or so it seemed to them, the Son of God himself
their loved commander had decided to go to man's rescue at the cost of his own lifeblood. No, there must be some other way. It must not happen. Picture the scene if you can. And after angel falling at the father's feet and pleading, Lord, let me go instead. Lord, couldn't you just make the world so beautiful, the sun set so incredibly brilliant, the sky so blue, and the stars so spectacular in the night sky that men would understand your love without sending you. Lord, you've given me skill with the pen. You've given me a creative mind. Couldn't I write a scroll that would stretch from sky to sky and tell men about your love so that Christ would not have to go? Lord, couldn't a legion of us go down and take the message? We are skilled in speech. We would make it eloquent. We would make it forceful. We would make it irresistible. We would tell men and women that you are so special. And they would listen. Then you wouldn't have to go. Lord, you know the charms of music. Music touches the heart as nothing else. Let us take the whole choir down there and call men back. We could begin singing even as we move through the corridors of Orion and let it swell into a mighty chorus as we touch down on earth. Wouldn't they respond? There must be some other way without sending you, Lord. But no. God sent a man. God sent the man, Christ Jesus. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time was come, God gave his son to redeem men and women. And so, my friends, I just want to remind you that God has that special watch care over us. Elijah was being watched when he took 12 stones and built the altar in the name of the Lord, 1 Kings 18. And he prayed to God and to the fire of the Lord fell and all the people shouted by saying, the Lord, he is God. Elijah was watched when he fled from Jezebel into the wilderness. Elijah was being watched when he fasted 40 days in Horeb. Elijah was being watched when he kept under the juniper tree. Elijah was being watched when the angel touched him to awake him with baked pancakes and heavenly water served, if you will, by a special angel from heaven. Elijah was being watched when the wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks with an earthquake and the fire burned the desert, Elijah was being watched when a still small voice called him from the cave. The voice of God, what doest thou here, Elijah? 1 Kings 19. Well, I was afraid that I being the only one left serving you would be killed and then no one would be left. God 
spoke commanding, get up, get back on the job. I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, what about Jonah? Jonah, you are being watched. I order you to Nineveh. And when I ordered you there, why are you traveling to Tarshish? May I have your attention? Please, may I have your attention? No matter how big the boat, no matter how far down you hide in the boat, no matter how deep you sleep, there's a storm that will set off the alarm that lets the whole world know that you are being watched. Amen. When you try to end your journey, journey, God always has a whale experience to give you nightmares until you decide for Nineveh. Jonah was a long-distance runner. Through disobedience, he was running from God. Through prayer, he was running to God. Through his preaching in Nineveh, he was running with God. And through complaining about who should be saved, he was a running ahead of God. Jonah, wipe your weeping eyes. Rejoice for this city which heard you and followed me. All my prophecies with people are conditional. I would that none should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of the truth. God was watching a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that loved God and avoided evil. The day came when representatives came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also, the Bible says, from the earth. And the Lord said unto Satan, have you met my servant Job? You know that story very well. So just let me ask you a question. How would you fare with Satan if God was bragging on you? Are you faithful enough for him to know that he can count on you? God never allows us to be given more than we are able to bear. And while he is watching all of the good characters of Scripture, he's also watching the devil. And the devil is not allowed to place on anybody more than they're able to bear. God measures what you can handle. And he makes sure that when temptations come your way, Amen. that you can handle them. Amen. The word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah in chapter 1. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said Jeremiah, 
Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. You are being watched. Jesus was watching the widow with her two mites in Mark, the 12th chapter, who gave more, the Bible says, than all the other worshipers. Why did he say she gave more? And how could she give more when she only gave two mites? All the others had something left over. But the Bible says she gave her all. God knows what we are capable of doing. And he's watching us to see if what we give, if what we do, is our best. All God wants us to do is to understand that he knows all our thoughts, Matthew 12, Luke 6. He even knew who would betray him, John 13. He knows our daily path, Psalms 142 and Job 23. He knows the way that I take, and when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Second Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord run to and forth throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. God is on a watch program. And just in case you think I'm talking about all of these Bible characters, no, 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 no. I'm talking about you. The church leaders, the church officers. God has his eyes on you. And he has promised that when you assume responsibilities, he makes himself responsible for your success. God was watching the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7 when he knelt in prayer saying, Lord, lay not this sin against their charge. And he fell down in death with the stoning. God was watching not only Stephen, but he was also watching Saul. Both men were highly earnest, fearless, and sincere. Stephen was spiritual and committed to Christ and the Christian religion. Saul was superstitious and worshiped in form and ritual. He fought against Christ and the Christian religion and reverenced the temple and the priest instead. Stephen humbled himself in the Lord, believing he was saved by faith alone. Saul 
was self-righteous, a Pharisee, as proud as he could be. Stephen defended, even with his life, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of the Lord shown in his countenance at death. Saul saw in the countenance of Stephen the picture of Jesus Christ as he assisted in the persecution of the servant of the Lord. Saul, Saul, you are the chosen one to replace the saint that you're killing. Oh, that grace may soon convert you. The vision of a shining face, the hearing of a noble discourse, the sight of a triumphant death, these did not convert Saul, but they made it harder for him to continue on the unconverted job that he was doing. Stephen's death was a terrible blow to the early church. But at that very moment, a deacon of replacement, a disciple, an apostle of Jesus Christ, standing in the ranks of the enemy, yet being watched to become an ambassador of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. One far greater than the martyr, Stephen, that leads me to say, you sometimes may experience the death of some of the church's best advocates, but that may assist in the conversion of the masses. Who would have thought that Stephen, when he died, was signing over, passing on, if you will, the baton to the one who would do an even greater ministry when he gave up his office? Romans 8:28, and we know that what? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Acts 9, and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any in the way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he was really saying, Who are you, sir? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise. So when you get to working for the Lord, the first thing you have to do is get up. I've had my eyes on you the whole time. 
you are being watched. Now, there are three important questions on the Damascus Road that every church leader and every church member must understand. These questions are very, very important. Number one, the question of conviction. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, Saul is thinking, well, I, I don't know you. I persecuted the church. Saul did many wicked things that an all-seeing God and an all-knowing God watched unfold until the moment of conviction came. What must God send your way to bring you to himself? Sometimes we are given experiences that makes us wonder, what have I done that God would treat me this way? And God who watches and sees all, who knows all, he has the moment of truth when a conviction will set in. And when that conviction time comes, it's at that point that God pops the question. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The question of conversion comes second. Who are you, Lord? Saul now had a willingness to submit to the question. Saul, who had sat at the feet of the wise Gamaliel. Saul, who was leader of his religion. Saul, who had scorned the Jesus, whose gospel seemed to insult his intelligence. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. When you mess with Stephen, you persecute me. When you harass the church members, you persecute me. When you disrespect the leadership, you persecute me. When you resent and despise the church program, you persecute me. Saul had never personally persecuted Jesus. In fact, he never personally met Jesus. Now he realized the bond between Jesus and his leaders, between Jesus and his people. To mistreat any person, especially a Christian, is to mistreat Jesus. Saul converted immediately upon the hearing of the answer of Jesus. Then came the question that brought consecration. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The question of consecration. And if you would stop and look back at some of the characters that I threw out, every last one of them have that Saul appeal. Every last one of them has to respond ultimately in these three questions. And when they reach that point of consecration, what wilt thou 
have me to do, then God has broken through. If Adam had not come to a realization that he needed to do something to be saved from his sin, fallen condition, he would have been lost. But he was able to work through his experience and to ask this question. I want to say every last one of us, especially church leaders, have to answer these three questions. God always has tasks for all his followers. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a job for you to do. Why Christ didn't answer the question. It's very interesting. Saul asked, Lord, what you want me to do? And God said to him, get up, go to town. If you can get somebody to show you how to get to Damascus, there's a man by the name of Judas who lives on Straight Street. Find him. Have some fellowship with him. You had planned to take him out, as a matter of fact. Make friends with him. And then in that journey that took a good little while, I think it was a time for him to sober up and think through. And then after three days of fellowshipping, the Lord spent some time over at Ananias' house. And he told Ananias, there's a man in town. His name is Saul. He's on the same street that you live on. He's over there at Judas' house. Go over there, and here's what I want you to tell him. And he rehearsed with Ananias what he was to tell Saul to do. Now, it would have been a lot easier if God had just told Saul what he wanted. But the servant Lord says that the reason God did not tell Saul direct is because, Acts of the Apostles, because God works through his church leaders. God works through his church organization. And while he could have told him on the spot, he said, no, I'm going to respect church organization. I'm going to respect church leadership. So you go find Straight Street. When you get on Straight Street, start first with Judah's house because y'all have something going on. Come on but then Ananias was drilled. Well, Lord, isn't that the man that's been killing up the Christians? I don't think I want to bother with him. He's been converted. And I've chosen him, if you will. Acts of the Apostles makes it clear. I have chosen him to take 
Stephen's place. So you need to go. And so Ananias went. When you come to Christ, there's no time to make excuses. When you come to Christ and accept church offices, there is no time sure enough for you to talk about what you are doing that would keep you from doing what you've been elected to do. Don't come up in here with, I just bought some oxen. I got to go and see if, if they plow good. I just bought a piece of land and I, I need to check and see if it'll grow anything. When you accept responsibility, God expects you to be responsible. The scriptures infer that the church is to be the only entity to survive the very end, but what does that mean? What is the church? Are we talking about a denominational organization? Are we talking about physical properties, buildings, schools, and the like? What is the church? At Pentecost, the Bible says, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2. Or, as the New English Bible puts it, and the day by day the Lord added their number, those whom he was saving. The church here is then the fellowship of the believers. In the verses immediately preceding the one just noted, a description of the life of style of these believers is given. They met constantly to hear the apostles teach and to share the common life, to break bread, to pray, to sense of all was everywhere and many marvels and signs were with them brought about through these apostles. All whose faith had drawn them together led them to have everything in common. They would sell their property and possessions and make a general distribution at the need of each required. With one mind, they kept up their daily attendance at the temple and breaking bread in private houses, shared their meals with the unaffected joy as they praised God and enjoyed the favor of the people, Acts 2, 44 to 46. In the moments that I have left, let's consider a listing of these characteristics. The apostolic church, they organized study groups, maintained constant fellowship, broke bread together, prayed together, felt a deep sense of awe, experienced miracles, shared their financial resources, worshiped together daily, met in homes for fellowship meals, treated one another with joy and humility, Praise God continually. The implication is that the church was a fellowship of men and women who were intensely committed to a single cause, deeply united in mind and heart, and constant close relationship to one another. In other words, the church was a family. And because of the affirmative relationships within the body of the family, God was able to bring into it those whom he was saving. In fact, the saving, maturing work was significantly enhanced by the group. And I say we should encourage people to come in by our behavior. Sometimes we lose people not because the doctrines were not good or right, but because the way we act. Anybody home? As the New Testament is studied, it becomes obvious that an increasing level of organized 
gradually, organization gradually developed. The highly informal structure which worked when the church was small no longer met the needs of the body. And so organization sets in and then people are chosen to fill specific ministries, elders, deacons, others, principles of financial support were laid out. Charitable programs, charitable programs were organized. And of course, a detailed theology was set along with the specific assignments. Now, in a sense, the church must always exist on at least two levels, the organized entity and the smaller groupings of intimately related believers who carry on support ministries one for another. There's always a church visible and a church invisible. In that sense, our church ought to have with its visibility members who are going to be kind and sharing and Christ-like, like Stephen. We never know who can find Christ by looking into our faces. Can the world see Jesus in you? That's the challenge that we have as we move into the next year. God is calling a people who are not afraid of the radar screen that God has set out. You and I are the spotlight for the world to see. And if you don't realize it, God also has his eyes on you and me. You are being watched. What does God see when he looks at you and me? Can God depend on you? Can God depend on me to have that burning of his image in our souls so that we are able at all times and in all places to name Jesus Christ as the one that has placed the mark on our lives. If he does, then we'll end up like the Apostle Paul, just as fervent, just as committed, a fight that took him to his death.